Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, we know you're out there. Good morning to you, too. We're in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. We will take verses 1 through 5, a short section. The message is entitled, A Prophetic Death. It concerns itself with the death of James and almost the death of Peter. And you just can't brush past the death of James to get through the chapter. Uh, so that's what we're going to consider. So if, we have, if you have your Bibles, please stand for the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Now about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some of the church then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when they had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Please be seated. We could have stopped at verse 4, because verse 5 belongs to the following verses, or we could keep it where it is. It works either way. You don't need to know that, I guess, but uh, factored into my thinking. We're leaving Antioch. We, we met with the Christians last session at the church in Antioch. And I, I think that if you look at, if you, you know, when I used to buy, when I came into ministry and I'd get books on pastoral sermons, I'd look at the table of contents and the titles of the sermons would dictate where I would go first. Well, I learned that that wasn't a good idea because uh, maybe because I didn't see what the writer or the speaker saw when he made that title. And it was up to me to learn. If you put exciting titles on things, then of course you're going to attract people. But I would encourage you to uh, just listen to the titles if, if, if this is a habit that you have of, of following what sounds exciting. Listen to the title and learn. And the example that I'm giving is Antioch. It doesn't sound very exciting unless you know what took place there. And then it becomes a very big issue. And all Christians should know about the church in Antioch. Well, we're leaving that church for now, and we return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. Jesus said that. Jerusalem is going to fade now, after this chapter, as the center of Christian operations. And as it passes out of sight, Antioch, Ephesus, Corinth, other cities with other churches and many Gentiles coming into the church will begin to grab our attention. The coming outreaches to the Roman Empire, they will start at Antioch. The Holy Spirit will say, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work of ministry. It'll be a very exciting chapter 13. Well, anyway, that is tying us into where we are this morning. We, we are in Jerusalem in this section. Verse 1, 
Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. It has been about 11 years since our Lord was crucified and risen and ascended to heaven. That's where we are now. We can date this by the death of Herod that takes place in this chapter. Barnabas and Saul may have arrived from Antioch after the persecutions we're reading about here. When we left last chapter, they were heading towards Jerusalem. Well, when we get to the end of this chapter, they'll be leaving Jerusalem. So we, um, where, where do we place their visit? And it's likely after uh, the events that we're considering uh, this morning. Now, Herod, at whom, we, whom we read about here in verse 1, the name means heroic. It's a compound Greek name. It means a hero or heroic. Nothing was heroic about any of the six Herods we read about in the scripture, except maybe from Satan's standpoint. The last one we read about, Agrippa II, he has got some flash of brilliance when he's listening to Paul preached to him, you almost persuade me to be a Christian, he says, but there's no evidence that he ever turned to Christ. This Herod that we're reading about here in verse 1 is not the same Herod as in the days when Christ was born. That Herod, the great monster, had the children of Bethlehem, the boys, two years old and under, killed because he felt they were a threat to his throne. He was a madman anyway. He did other horrific things. And uh, as I mentioned, from Satan's perspective, the only thing, uh, these men were heroic to Satan. This is that Herod, the great monster's grandson, this Herod that we're reading here. He's the grandson. His uncle was the one that, had John the Baptist beheaded. That Herod, Herod Antipas, is the only man in the scripture who Christ refused to answer. No one is ignored by Christ, except in the sense that the Lord did not answer this man when that man questioned him, and so he was ignored. He was ignored because he wasn't ignored, if you can understand the application of that paradox. This Herod I is also a killer of the righteous, as was his grandfather, as was his uncle. In their veins flowed that noxious blood of royal murderers. He stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, it tells us. That Greek word for harass really means to hurt and to injure. When we think of the word harass, we don't necessarily, or we're not so quick to think of actually injuring somebody uh, as in the sense that he's killing people. But that's what it means. The old King James says that he vexed. He, he began to vex the church. Very poetic. Just as the Gentiles are coming into the church, into Christianity, Satan attacks from without. And he attacks the leadership of the church. Here in Jerusalem, that's who is targeted, the apostles. There were more people involved in the killing of James than just Herod, of course, because it tells us that this pleased the Jews. Uh, Not all the Jews, 
In fact, James was a Jew. So we have to always make sure, be careful, that when we tell the facts about the unrighteous Jews, that we're not slandering the Jewish people. I don't know how any Christian could think that they could be against the Jewish people. The Bible makes it very clear. you walking through a minefield blindfolded. Uh, you know, you uh, told Abraham straight out, anybody mess with your, your offspring, I'm going to get them. And so uh, we're, we're very mindful of that, but we could also extend that to any people. We would not want to be biased against any uh, people simply because of their, their race. Well, coming back to this, um, this persecution that is breaking out, this fresh persecution breaking out in Jerusalem, it finds its parallel in a Gentile city, the Gentile city of Smyrna. We read about that city in the book of Revelation. Some 60 years later, uh, Jesus addresses the seven churches in that region of the world. Asia Minor, it was known then. Today it's in Turkey. and We, we know it is Turkey. It's always been there. Uh, but uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 Jesus says to that church, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I have known the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's some heavy duty criticism. You know, you, you, that's not user, well, it's not uh, seeker friendly, somebody might say. Anytime you suppress the truth of Jesus Christ, with wrong motives, you're not being seeker-friendly. You're being unfriendly. Christ is telling it like it is. He is saying to the church in Smyrna, you're being persecuted by those who claim they're Jews, but they have nothing to do with Yahweh. Everything they're doing is against Yahweh. They are anti-Christ. And it wasn't just the Jews. He continues, and here in Smyrna, it was the Jews allying themselves with the Gentiles to persecute that church. And Christ continues, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Christ has a different perspective on suffering, doesn't he? How do you not fear the things you're going to suffer? And he just kind of, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Well, it continues, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. It, it is up to us to line up with the meanings of Christ. And his perspective on suffering and death and life. We line up with him, not with our feelings. It's, it is our faith that dictates to us uh, how we are to look at things. This animosity between some of Christendom and the Jews throughout the ages is Satan's doing. You know, the Crusaders, they, what started the Crusaders off with, of course, the, the Islamic aggression. Uh, they were conquering and taking Christian cities and villages and the, the uh, Constantinople, I don't remember the emperor's name, it's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, he sends to Rome to, and rallies the, the Europeans and uh, in, the name, in, the, in the emblem of the cross, they head to Uh, to the promised land, to take Jerusalem back. Well, when they get to Jerusalem, they slaughter the Muslims and the Jews. It's just, uh, I mean, they they did that in war, but it it creates 
continued this animosity that exists to this day in many circles. And it shouldn't be. This is Satan's work. And there are many Christians that, of course, know better. Do people even know what it is they are rejecting when they reject Jesus Christ? When Herod is rising up against the Christians here in Jerusalem, although his is more political than anything, but when the Jewish people were rising against those who were saying, hey, Christ is our Messiah, do they really, do they understand what they are rejecting? This is important to us too, because today there are the Christ haters that don't even know why they hate Christ. You ask them, why, why are you so much against Christianity? Well, they may tell you about what churches have done, what they've seen Christians do, because they've never met Christ. They've only met people who claim to have met Christ. So our testimony is a vital part of serving the Lord Jesus. We just were singing the song, While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And what the, singer, the, the songwriter is saying is, Lord, I see you calling other people to serve you. I want to serve you too. If you're sitting on the shore of Galilee and you see Christ call Peter and Andrew, but he doesn't call you, you say, well, I want to be called too. I know that I wanted to be called, and called. When I felt called into the pastorate, I wanted to be put to work. And the Lord took years to pull it off. They were painful years, but they were very important. Anyway, why do people reject Jesus Christ? Well, let's make sure we give them a good reason if they're going to continue on that line, uh, that they understand if we have a chance to tell them just who it is they are rejecting. And this was the work of the church then, and this is the work of the church now. One facet of it. Verse 2, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. No heroics, no explanation points on this. Just the stern recital of the grim fact. He killed James. That's the fact. They killed a son of thunder. Beheaded for Christ. That's what it means by they killed him with the sword. They did not stab him or slice him. They chopped off his head. James, the apostle, died a prophetic death. Christ told both he and his brother, in front of their mother, that they were going to drink a cup. That was quite unpleasant. This is when his, their mom came to Christ and said, can you make, have it so that my boys, my sons, sit on your right hand and your left hand? And I'm, I don't know if they were saying, Mom, you know, or if they were like, yeah, that's right. But I know the other apostles were like, what? Where's my mom? come and do this. And Christ, you could imagine the look on his face and be like, oh gosh, I got to clean this one up. So, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? To be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. All right, Christ said, let's put it out there. Uh, can you handle this? Yeah, we can. Okay, well, you are. And here it is. Here James is drinking the cup of death in the service of God, in the service of the Father. 
in the likeness of Christ. What about John? Well, you know, historians tell us, because of some of the writers not too far removed from the events, tell us that John died of old age in Ephesus after being persecuted and exiled to Patmos, the island where he penned the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we're not 100% sure. Relatively reliable, but it's not scripture. But he still suffered. I mean, who would want to be in their 90s on exile on the Isle of Patmos? And uh, John was. They both had to endure. Not only that, they had to watch their beloved co-apostles suffer and die. Barring Jesus, James was the first. In other words, Judas was really the first apostle of Jesus Christ to die. But Judas was, of course, defrocked. He was no longer part of the apostolic band. That means James, when he died, was the first apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, legitimately still an apostle. And uh, he heads out to heaven as a martyr, and the others will follow. He is the only apostle whose death is recorded in the New Testament, again, barring Judas. However, the Lord promised Peter that he was going to die uh, a martyr's death too. So you could, I would include that. I would say we know for sure of the New Testament telling us about two apostles of Jesus Christ who were martyred to death. You know, a martyr does not have to die. He can suffer. And, uh, of course, the word martyr means a witness. They were witnesses who suffered for Christ. This death, again, fulfills the prophecy of Jesus about they will drink the cup that he is about to drink. He was referring to, of course, his death. God let Herod kill James because God at this time had more use for James' head on the chopping block than he had for him behind the pulpit. The time had come. And it, there was a time when it came even for our Lord, when his life was more useful to the Father on the cross, no longer on the shores of Galilee. Jesus was eager to meet this, this, this appointment. John's Gospel, chapter 12, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Then he went on to say in verse 32 of John 12, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. And that's a grand invitation. That drawing is an invitation. Included in this is how Jesus, when Luke talks about Jesus, set his face in the Hebrew, tying into Isaiah, like a flint. He was determined to get to Jerusalem so they could crucify him and he could save sinners from the judgment to come. The evidence suggests that James was, at this time, the most brilliant leader in the church. You say, what evidence suggests that? I don't know, but it sounds very good, doesn't it? No, I, I, I have my opinion on it. This son of thunder was singled out to be the first one. And, of course, he was singled out by the Lord. The Lord knew this was going to happen, and he used it. We don't hear of the voice of James in Scripture. 
as we do of Andrew and Peter and John. Yes, we hear him say, shall we call fire down? They were very, he was very zealous for Jesus, he and his brother. They, re- they rejected you, Lord. Should we kill them? <laughs> Christ said, no. What do you, that's not how we do it. And they had to learn this transition from Old Testament to New Testament, as we Christians do. I mean, we look at the justice exercise in the Old Testament, and sometimes we think to ourselves, boy, that would be nice to see some of that right now. But now is the age of grace and saving souls and not executing justice within the nation of, of Israel. Or, Of course, we want our government to do such things. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. Coming back to James, this brilliant leader in the church, we don't hear his voice as we do theirs. However, this quiet man was not overlooked by Jesus. So much so that Christ put him in the inner circle. Those, there were three apostles that Christ drew closer to him than, than the others. Not that, uh, for his reasons that are really not disclosed to us, and I'm sure he left someone, one of them in charge of the group as he, he would move around with these three. The three times we read about this is at the raising of Jairus' daughter. You know, Christ came and said, she's not dead. And they all mocked him. And so he had to put the, the faithless out. The unbelief had to leave the room. He got them all out, except James, John, and Peter. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, there again, we expect to see Peter. We expect to see John. We have their writings. We know what characters they were. But there is James. This is not the same James that wrote the letter of James uh, in our, that comes after the letter to the Hebrews in our New Testament. This is the brother of John, the apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, the letters of John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he didn't write that when he recorded it. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Christ is about to go to the cross. There again is this James, Peter, and John. So he's in this inner circle. And that, I mean, how did he get there? How come he is there and we don't hear from him? Well, again, this quiet man was not overlooked by Christ, and he was careful to place him there. His death must have rocked the church severely, and we know that because we see their response when they go after Peter. We see the church's response. But you might look at this and say, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the short answer is this world is cursed. We're in the age of the cursed world. James could have protested. I can't believe this is happening to me. I walked with the Christ. I was part of the inner circle. I was one of his students, a leader in the church. He, would, he did no such thing. But we would, we would expect a carnal reply like the response to such a beheading, bad things happen to good people. To identify those who believe no matter what. That's the story of Habakkuk, the little prophet, about three chapters in the prophecy of Habakkuk. He didn't like what God was showing him. And he told the Lord, I don't care for this. And then he said, I'll stand my watch and see how he will respond to me. And in the end, we see how Habakkuk responds to what God was showing him. God was saying, listen, I'm going to judge the Jewish people for their sin. And then we hear Habakkuk say, we could be out of food, we could die, no matter what's coming. Oh, sing the praises to the Lord. In fact, it is a a mini psalm in, in his little prophecy. Bad things happen to good people. 
It costs to belong to the body of Christ. Whatever and whenever, whatever causes that persecution and whenever the church is harassed and made to feel pain, whether it is on the larger scale of an assembly or an individual scale, it costs to serve Christ. Matthew 5, verse 12. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, here is James. James heard that. He listened to this Sermon on the Mount. And now he's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And happy to be so. Execution by sword in Israel is linked to a judgment against those who lead people away from Yahweh to false beliefs. Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 15. They were, you know, if you had a village there in Israel and they, that village had decided they were going to worship uh, uh, idols in a false way, they would worship God, that, that village was to be judged by the sword. And there's probably that implication that here that uh, he worships Messiah and that's not our Messiah and the Jews, uh, the, the unrighteous Jews would have liked that. To belong to Christ and his church, it costs something. Whether it is prayer, maybe you're at a, a stage in your life, maybe it's your health, maybe for whatever reason, you really can't serve in a lot of places, but you can pray. Prayer is work. All work comes by the sweat of the brow. There's not a job on earth that is smooth sailing the entire time. You will meet with something that will make it difficult. And uh, it costs either prayer or service, which is time, which attacks you. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're on the schedule to serve in the usher's ministry, and you don't feel like it, but you go anyway. Because it is your duty to be there on post because you're serving Christ and his people. Maybe as you serve, it's costing you time or hurt. You, many of you know, if you belong to a church a long period of time and you make friends and some of those people decide to move on and leave the church, it can hurt. That's, it costs to belong to Christ. The tiny souls try to dodge through life unscathed. You can't do it. The bigger ones, they take the hits. If belonging to a church costs you nothing, then what is that church worth? That's only a question an individual can answer. What's it worth to you? A cheap church membership, it satisfies neither God nor man nor the beholder of that membership. If you want a good church, then you've got to be ready to fight for it. There's just no other way. And not by having a say-so, but by being on post, demonstrating the loyalty. I'm not talking about in the face of heresy. I say this often because it needs to be said. Where else you're not going to hear it when you're shopping out at Target somewhere or wherever you go to, to shop. You, you have to come to the church to hear it from somebody else. The word of God is living and powerful, to convict, to rebuke, to exhort. This is the role of the pastor given to him by Christ. The pillars that the Bible speaks about in the New Testament, and it does in several places, it draws our attention to a pillar, a column. It is a post that 
holds things up. And it does it quietly. Quietly, it bears its load. And if it should not bear its load, everything comes down. We as individuals should be pillars in the church. The church is supposed to be the pillar and ground of truth. And we are to uphold these things. And it's going to cost you to do it effectively. It will cost you. And if it doesn't, and over time, you've got to ask yourself, why not? Well, that was a chance to get that in because I felt led to do so. You know, when when you come to these things, these bullet points, uh, before you speak them, you've, you've gone over them in your head with the Lord. Lord, do I keep this in? Do I cut this out? Is this what needs to be said? It's not uncommon to cut something out and to feel the Lord say, put that back in. And this is uh, true of any, any time we are sharing God's word and maybe things that are unpleasant, but they need to be said, and hopefully we do not say them in a malicious way. Verse 3, And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to further seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So while Peter is grieving the loss of James, and we can bet he grieved, but also understood that James was in heaven now, went out as a martyr. While Peter and the church were grieving the loss of James, Satan hit him again. Couldn't catch their breath. These lowly fishermen had no right to be up in their face telling them, who Jesus is. That's how their persecutors viewed it. This wasn't law enforcement. James broke no, made no, broke no law. Peter broke no law. This wasn't uh, like Barabbas, a man who was an outlaw. These were upstanding citizens whom they arrested and whom one they killed, the other they sought to kill. So this was murder. And from the politician, this politician, Herod, from his perspective, this was good because they wanted to keep Rome happy. And the way to keep Rome happy is to keep the taxes flowing and keep down uh, wars and uh, suppress any uprisings. But here, for the Christian, we look at this and we say, well, we expect this from a man like Herod to be concerned with what the people liked. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews pastor has to look at that and say, what am I doing that pleases Christ? And uh, he doesn't do that, hopefully, with an obnoxious attitude. I don't care about you. What does God say? I mean, that would be wrong. But he wants to take his orders from God and be sensitive to the people at the same time, because therein God speaks also. Galatians chapter 1, Paul put it this way, for I do not For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, he was in this position to say this to the church at Galatia. I'm not trying to win your affections by flattery. I'm telling you the truth because I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Whereas others were coming into those church, that the churches in the region of Galatia, and they were trying to flatter them and win them over to their views. Paul is saying, I'm just giving you like and telling you like it is. And he does a, a magnificent job also in that Galatian letter. Anyway, here in verse 3, now it was during the days of unleavened bread. 
So we're right around Passover season when Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims coming in for the Passover, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They'll be back, many of them, for Pentecost. Others will stay. Uh, the men were mandated to be there for the Passover and for pa- uh, Pentecost. This was supposed to be a respectable Passover spectacle of having Peter executed just after the holiday season. Well, they, they executed Christ during the holidays. They said that they wouldn't, but they did because it was prophetic, prophetic and they could, they, 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 just the will of God will be done. Verse 4, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. This is Peter's third arrest. He's been arrested twice before, chapter 4 and chapter 5. This time, he's placed under maximum security. Because one of those times, the second time he was arrested, uh, the first time he was arrested, he gets out of jail. He's miraculously delivered. The gate opens up, the angel opens the gate, and Peter gets out. Sixteen men to guard one, Peter. And uh, that, as it tells us here, he's chained to these guards. Both of his wrists chained to a guard on each side, and then there would be two more outside the cell standing watch over Peter. Chains, guards, he's got an iron gate that he has to get through. He's going to do that. We'll get that next session. All this because he loved and served Jesus Christ. He could have avoided this if he just played the game of the world. It cost too belong. And here he is. It says here in verse 4, intending to, uh, that Herod was intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. So this was the, de- the delay in Peter's execution. Had it not been for the holiday season, they would have already beheaded him. And there's a lot to say about this, I think. Might, maybe I'll be concise, maybe not. <laughs> we'll see. Again, the crowds are here. The enemies of Christ always imagine that they're in control. They always think they are. Matthew 25, 26, verse 5. Matthew 26, verse 5. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. But Christ was the Passover lamb. And he had to be crucified during the Passover. And that is what, it, what had happened. And so they failed then at, the, at Christ, at the time of Christ. And they are going to fail here because Peter is going to escape. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Well, most commentators like to stress that word constant, and I think they're right. The execution of James, not only did it rattle the church, but it rallied the church. That's good preaching, isn't it? Anyway, this was fervent prayer. That's what that word constant, translated constant in the New King James. In the uh, Greek, it means fervent. It shows up one other place in the New Testament. That, that should account for something. And it's used by Peter in 1 Peter 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Peter had been around Christians long enough to know this, is, this had to take place. There had to be fervent love. 
to face all the things people throw at us if we're going to be effective for Christ. There must be love. Well, it's interesting that there's no mention of anybody fasting here. They're gathered and they are fervently praying. Not that it's wrong to fast, but it's not mandatory. Not always mandatory. I know a lot of people say, you know, Jesus didn't say, you know, um, if you fast, when you fast. Well, you can't read too much into that because some people cannot fast. I mean, there are health reasons. They're just not able to do it. Um, but in another sense, you can always eliminate something you like a lot for a little bit, abstain. Anyway, a praying church, it is a stronger church. That's true. I believe that. Uh, it doesn't mean that that church will be delivered from everything it faces. If James wasn't delivered, why should we expect we're going to be delivered? But we have to still come. We have a lot still to go here. Paul, the apostle, convinced of the value of prayer, in all of his letters to the churches, except one, he asked for prayer for himself and for the work that was going on. The exception was the backslidden church in Galatia. And Galatia, as uh, those churches, it wasn't, Galatia was a region. And it, 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 there were several churches there. And they were sliding into back to Judaism and legalism. And, and, and that's what the Galatian letter deals with. And uh, to that church, he did not ask them to pray for him. Because they had, to, they had other things they had to fix before he wanted their prayers. And so it should be. We Christians do not want unbelievers praying for us. Uh, who are they praying to? Well, we know who they're praying to, and we want nothing uh, to, to do with that. Paul brings that out in a in, in Corinthian letter. I don't want you to have fellowship with, with demons. Well, to guard against fatalism that will show up in time. If you pray, if you're involved as a Christian in, in the fights that go on in our personal life and in, the, in ministry and in the, your church, uh, you're going to see many prayers go ungranted. And this is not justification to stop praying or to not believe in prayer. And there are several reasons why. I'll give you one now and one at the end of the message. Uh, to guard against fatalism, I would suggest Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 1. It's been a big help for me. And there Luke says, gives a little commentary on the parable Jesus is about to give. And he says, he's giving us this parable. Luke 18, 1, quote, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Believers are to always pray without ceasing, Paul said. And all the beatings Paul took, uh, he's still praying. You would think he'd say, you know what, I asked these churches to pray for me. and This is what I get. I'm done with it. That is just what Satan wants you to do. Because prayer is not about getting from God, except getting God. To get with God, to be with God. And he holds on to these things. And so let's, we'll continue. The, we'll get back to that at the end about prayer and its value. These Christians that are praying fervently for Peter, did they lose sight of the fact that Peter could not die until he was old? That was prophetic. Jesus said, John 21, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wish. But when you are old, 
You will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. He's speaking of how Peter is going to die in serving the Lord. But he's also guaranteeing within it that, Peter, you're going to be old. You're going to do a lot of ministry before I'm done with you. And the first Christians, they may have lost sight of the Lord's promise to Peter about dying when he was old. After all, we are susceptible to losing sight of Bible verses, of teachings. There are things that we, I forgot all about that. And it is uh, somewhat encouraging to hear that, okay, uh, the, the the first Christians that were just in love with the Lord on the battlefield, they too lost sight of things. Or perhaps they knew he would not die and prayed fervently for his release and that he would not be abused. That is a possibility too. I mean, dying's not the only bad thing that can happen to a person. They could have tortured him, abused him, like I mentioned. And so they're praying for his relief, re- release from jail. Regardless, they want Peter free. The outcome of spiritual war settled for us as Christians, but... The conflict is serious nonetheless. We are not supposed to be, as it has been said, so heavenly minded that we're no value on earth, of no earthly use. There are big fights here. There are scores to settle. There are souls to save. And the only way we're going to be a part of it is to, be, to join the fight uh, and not, not withdraw unto ourselves. James, he's in heaven now. But the prayers aren't wasted. In fact, I'll just get to this now. Um, Revelation chapter 8. There we see, uh, well, in the Old Testament, at the incense altar, when the, when the priest offered up incense on the golden altar to the Lord, it symbolized the prayers of the people ascending to heaven. It was a visual thing. And when we get to the book of Revelation, it shows up again. And it's it's connected to the prayers of the saints, especially those that are being persecuted. And we read in Revelation 8, verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. We pray because Jesus said men ought always pray and not lose heart. We pray because our prayers are retained by God. He does not dismiss them. You may feel that way. You may say, he doesn't care. He doesn't love me. Uh, He just, he doesn't answer my prayers. God says, I hear every single one of them, and I keep them on file because they're that important to me. But there are things that have to get done. And if you say, I am sovereign God, let me be sovereign God. You will be here one day, and all these things will be left behind. But until then... You ought always pray and not lose heart. Alexander McLaren, great Scottish preacher, used to say you had to be Scottish to be a good preacher. So I became Scottish. Listen, I did. You know, I didn't realize how old I was. I looked at my birth certificate, not the dates, but the whole thing's written in Latin. You had to go pretty far back when government records were kept in Latin. Okay, never mind. Slow crowd, Lord, your people. Anyway, Alex Lander, get to the quote, Pastor. Okay, I will in a minute, but did you hear the one about the guy that walked into... 
Alexander McLaren said, There can be no faith so feeble that Christ does not respond to it. Yes, a lot of thought goes into that. Because Christ, there he was on the cross, suffering in the presence of the Father. And he took it like the Savior. And others have done the same thing. Uh, James, uh, there's extra biblical writings about how James faced his execution. I don't think we should repeat them because they just can't substantiate them. But I would have no doubt that he went out as the believer he was. Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. That's an emotional prayer. I mean, you know, you might lose that, but, you know, to the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Anytime you have the word sacrifice, you have emotions. There's, there's just, you know, it's, it's a loss, but that's because there's something more valuable to gain. You're giving up something valuable because there's something more valuable. And for us, it is our faith, the genuineness of our faith, to trust God no matter what. That kind of resolve has to be guarded all your life. You don't just get it when you're a Christian all excited about the Lord and not really facing too many things. You, you don't get to keep it just because you've been serving for decades. The more time you spend on life, the more attacks you're going to endure. Don't be surprised. Just endure them. Prayer is a grand indication of two truths every time. Number one, that we're still in the fight. If you're praying, you're still in the fight. Because Satan doesn't want you to pray. Satan hates when you pray. He does everything he can do to get you to stop. And, you know, I don't know. Sometimes when it's been good in my life, I found it very easy to pray. Sometimes when it's been good in life, I've been a little bit slack in my, my, my prayers. Sometimes when the pressure has been on, I've been very fervent in prayer. Sometimes when the pressure has been on, I haven't felt the heart to pray. I break through. I, I pray anyway. Uh, so this is, you want to talk about spiritual warfare, this is it. Be caught praying. Second Corinthians proves that you're still in the fight if you're praying. Paul wrote, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And he goes on to talk about always dying for Christ, giving himself to the Lord. Every time Paul spoke, every sentence seemed to be a sermon when he spoke. Because the Holy Spirit had found in him the resources that he needed and because he put them there. The second indication about prayer that is very true is that not only are we still in the fight, but we're still in the fight because the Holy Spirit is moving within us. It's not because we have some resolve. We're tougher than the other guy. The world can produce very tough people, very brave men and women, are in the world that know nothing of Christ. Many of them are anti-Christ. Something has to make the distinction between the world and the saint who is out of the world. And the Holy Spirit is one element. And if you are praying, 
You're being moved by the Holy Spirit, regardless of the outcome. It's, it's, it's not prayer on terms. Okay, I'll pray if. It's I pray because he is God and he is worthy. And that's what worship means. Worship means he is worthy. Ephesians, this makes the point. Then we'll close in prayer with time to spare. Which means we'll just tack it to one of the other sermons. Ephesians 6.18. Again, Paul is in jail when he writes this. He doesn't know what his future is going to be. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Baked into that one verse, there's a lot of work. Always praying. All prayer with supplication. Asking things, asking for supplies. Supplication. Supplies. I need bullets. I need artillery. I need bandages. I need food. I need rest. I need my enemy taken out of my life. I mean, that doesn't mean a hit. You know, we don't want to ask God, could you kill him? We don't, that's not what we do. Those imprecatory psalms were in the days of the law, not the age of grace. And he says here in Ephesians, being watchful. You can't be watchful, not effectively, if you're so emotional that you're just not, you're just, your feelings are dictating everything. Uh, people who are emotionally driven scare me. They just scare me. And I scare myself when I feel, you know, when something happens, you can feel your emotions well up. You're trying to keep calm. And it's not always easy. But it's worth trying. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance. Perseverance means no matter how many times you are shot, so long as you can still move forward, keep moving forward. And he repeats, and supplication for all the saints. Don't forget others. Let's pray. Our Father, any death that is prophetic is a death that has for us lessons to apply to our lives, to your glory. May we not miss them. As I've been speaking, Lord, it is always the ambition of the saints that if there is an unbeliever listening, that they will become a believer. That you moving in their heart will prompt them to make a confession of faith, to turn their back on a life without Jesus and turn their face forward to the life serving you. If you have not opened your heart to Christ, you have an opportunity now. You might not get another one, and then it will be too late. You say, well, you're trying to scare me into salvation. No, I'm trying to tell you the truth. And it is scary. But the motive is to see you saved from a judgment sure to come on those who reject Jesus Christ. If you want to receive him and not reject him, then say it. Confess your sins. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else good enough to die for me and no one else strong enough to rise again and to take my sin, the judgment of my sin away from me. And I give my life to you right here, right now, from this day forward. I turn my back 
from the old life, and I turn forward to the new. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer, may they not be ashamed of it. May they act on it, and may they never depart. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.